Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. What's the difference between personality and consciousness? Can any combination of sciences be used to change human nature? What would it be changed to? Well, welcome to the 868th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno, coming to you live from WON AM and FM Radio in Woonsocket, Rhode Island, on the Paranormal Radio app from TalkStream Live and on TuneIn.com. I'm Paul, and my co-host, partner in Paranormal Adventure, and son, Ben, was unable to be with us today. And uh, our his fill-in, uh, Tim Beckley, uh, was unable to be with us today, too. So here we all are, uh, two of us, uh, plus our wonderful um, uh, producer sitting in for Ben, Dave Richards, uh, today comes a new guest on a deep topic, and if you'd like to join us on the show, call us at 401-766-1240 from anywhere, or email paul at behindtheparanormal.com. <clears throat> the author of 24 books, Robert J. Sawyer has been called the Dean of Canadian Science Fiction Writers, a futurist, screenwriter, and consultant for organizations and agencies uh, such as NASA. He has been interviewed over 350 times each on radio and television and countless times in print. Rob is uh, one of only eight writers in history and the only Canadian to win all three of the world's top science fiction awards for Best Novel of the Year, the Hugo, the Nebula, and the John W. Campbell Memorial Award. A holder of the Order of Canada, he lives in Mississauga, Ontario, just outside Toronto. Today, we will focus on his 2016 book, Quantum Night. Uh, Rob's website is sfwriter.com. Rob Sawyer, welcome to Behind the Paranormal. Thank you so much. Of course, it's my 2020 book. Not my 2016 book. Oh, sorry. Book. Well, well, hey, you know, we're, old, <coughs> we're all getting stuck in time. I mean, how can you tell? <laughs> Especially this, this year, I know, yeah. What year it is, that's right. Very, no very problem all. Delighted to be here. Absolutely thrilled. Yes, well, uh, we had a wonderful conversation pre-show, and uh, we're, we're very delighted to have you with us too, Rob. So let's uh, let's plunge right in, and the answer does not have to be 25 words or less. Uh, your book has an experimental psychologist teaming up with a quantum physicist because the world is falling apart. <laughs> think of that. Uh, can you fill us in on the scenario and the science as much as you can? Oh, my goodness. So we are going to talk about my 2016 book, Quantum Night. The uh-huh. most recent one is 2020 Oppenheimer Alternative. I'm happy to talk about any of my children. Unlike Mrs. Smothers on the old Smothers Brothers show, I don't have a favorite. So let's talk about Quantum <laughs> Night. Quantum Night, indeed, is a story, as you say, about an experimental psychologist who dis- – now, today, if you're asked to be involved in a test in experimental psychology – the experimenters have to do at any um, university or lab or facility in uh, the, the free world, they have to do informed consent. So in other words, I can't, if I want to do an experiment saying, you know, just watching scary movies give you nightmares, right? Or does it not, right? Uh-huh. I have to say to you, here's the goal of the experiment. Watching a scary movie, will you have a nightmare or not? We're going to wake you up at three in the morning. Alarm will go off, and you'll just tell us what you're dreaming of, right? Well, that kind of defeats the experiment because the the subject knows what the test is. So in my novel, Quantum Night, which absolutely deals with a modern experimental psychologist, he discovers back in the old Wild West days of the 70s and the 80s, and even, of course, earlier than that, when experimental psychologists did not do that, they would say, oh, we're testing just to see, you know, 
whether people are irritated if they have to get up and urinate in the middle of the night. So an alarm will go off. We're not telling you what we're really going to do. And he had his entire life, his entire personality, twisted and turned psychopathic because of an experiment that he was not given, had not given informed consent to 20 years in his past that is now bubbling up and affecting everything he does today. That's quantum night. Wow. Okay. Now, could you talk a little bit more about experimental psychology? I, mean, I get what you said about the scary movies and stuff, but uh, could you give some more examples? And uh, it sounds to me a little bit ominous. You know, I studied psychology like everyone else in college and grad school, but we never talked much about experiment. You know, um, I, I can imagine um, B.F. Skinner perhaps doing experiments on his uh, own children in the Skinner, etc. That, that, to me, is experimental psychology. Now, you and I have the video on here. Of course, some people will be listening without video. Behind me is the Starship Enterprise yes. uh, from Star Trek. And the penultimate episode of the original Star Trek guest starred Marriott Hartley. Some of you will remember her for uh, uh, her role on Star Trek as Zara Bath, a woman that Spock falls in love with. Others will remember her for a famous series of television commercials she did for Polaroid with James Gardner, playing husband and wife, even though they weren't ever romantically involved or married. She was B.F. Skinner's granddaughter. Ah. And she was raised, according to B.F. Skinner's principles, which are called operant conditioning, meaning you punish bad behavior, and you reward good behavior, but there's no emotion. The reward is a tangible reward. It's a candy. It's a toy. It's more, we would say today, maybe to a kid, more screen time on your tablet. The punishment is a tangible punishment. It's a slap on the wrist. It's being sent to your room, uh, you know, a, a detention or something like that. But never any emotional connection. And Marriott Hartley has written at great length about the fact that her entire life, her relationships with other people, her ability to function as a human being was destroyed by this experimental psychology uh, experiment that she grew up in, that nobody asked her as a baby or as a toddler or as a teenager or even as an adult whether or not she wanted to be part of this. The most famous uh, example, though, is the um, Stanley Milgram Obedience to authority experiments, which are 60 years old this year, 1960. So 60 years ago, a long time ago, but from 1960, 1945, World War II, not very long ago, 15 years. Well, Stanley Milgram was a survivor. Sorry, he is, he was um, not a survivor. He was an immigrant to the United States who had seen much of his family, but not all. Some were survivors slaughtered by Adolf Hitler, but not actually directly by Hitler, by people who Hannah Arendt, the great di uh, diarist of the Eichmann trial, quite uh, rightly described as having the banality of evil. Just regular Heinzes and uh, Kurtzes off the street who were brought in to do horrific jobs as prison camp guards or death chamber operators and just said, oh, this is my job today. Well, what uh, Milgram wanted to get at was why anybody would do such horrible things just because an authority figure, in this case, the Fuhrer, said you have to do it. And he concocted an experiment where people would come in and it was supposed to be he told two lies, two big whoppers. First, he told the people coming in that the other guy 
was the experimental subject. You're just volunteer manpower. Actually got $15 for doing it. I need some manpower. Come on, add, add to this ad in the paper. 15 bucks for an afternoon's work. Please, I need help. That person who answered the ad had to be a helper was the experimental subject. The person he was told was the experimental subject was an actor. And the second big lie he told was, it's a memory test. We're going to ask people to see how well they do memorizing things under adverse conditions. Well, everybody's had to cram for an exam or something. Interesting test. So the experiment was, the poor sap who came in and thought he was just the helper was given a row of buttons that would put increasingly higher voltage electric shocks into the supposed experimental subject each time he screwed up remembering a word or sequence of words he'd been asked to remember. Well, of course, the actor played along and kept screwing up, and the actual poor sap who didn't even know he was being an experimental subject was kept being told by the laboratory guys, no, no, throw another switch, another 15 volts, another 15 volts, until the actor was screaming. And yet, many of Milgram's experimental subjects who had never consented to this and never thought of themselves as being saddest, just kept throwing those switches until the actors were actually screaming out that they're in a life-threatening condition. But they would, the experimental subject would nonetheless obey authority. What we've learned about the dark recesses of the human mind from experimental psychology, you know, is, is horrifying. You know, it reminds me of the um, that scene in Ghostbusters where uh, Jennifer Runyon uh, plays Jennifer, who happens to be a friend of ours, a friend of the show, um, and uh, the, f- the fellow next to her is given electric shock, excuse me, electric shocks in order to determine if it affects his uh, psychic abilities with the Zener cards. And uh, it just, but, but that moves, moves us on to the subject of human nature. Can operant conditioning in any form be used to change human nature as opposed to human behavior. So that's a very uh, make a very interesting distinction between human nature, which is you know what's locked into your DNA. That's what evolution has produced. Human nature, and then human behavior is how we actually what we actually choose to do. Um, it's very similar to the concept of you know your genotype might say that you tend to be portly as I do, and your phenotype says, yeah, but if I exercise and I eat right, I don't have to express that genotype. My phenotype can be thin. From time to time it is and isn't today. (laughs) And my genotype nonetheless says, no, 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 all things being equal, unless you override your nature, you're going to be on the chubby side if you are lucky enough to live in the developed world and the access to food isn't a problem. It's the same thing about human nature and human behavior. So operant conditioning absolutely works at the uh, human nature level. It, it works in animals, and we're animals, so it works on us. If you reward a child, the child will do well. If you punish a child, the child, the, uh, the goal of punishment usually is actually to extinguish a behavior. So if the child throws temper tantrums every time you go to a restaurant, you say, well, no dessert for you, Right. Oh, but, and eventually they realize, oh, all right, I'm being punished because I do a temper tantrum. If I don't do a temper tantrum, I, I get that ice cream sundae for dessert next time we go, you know, to the restaurant. So it works, but it's more important 
that we have the ability to rise above that. If there's anything that we're dealing with, you know, uh, across the world right now as we do a reckoning on Black Lives Matter, on LBGDQ rights, on how we approach others, we are genetically built, as most primates are, and certainly our closest relatives, the chimpanzees are, to be very tribal and territorial. That seemed to be an advantage on the African savanna for, well, seven million years ago when we split from the chimpanzee line. It ain't an advantage today. And yet if we just go on autopilot, it happens over and over again. We look around for anybody who doesn't look like they actually are a close genetic relative, which is all you can assess at a distance with uh, an ape might be able to do it with smell. We can only do it with, with vision. They can do it with vision and smell. And say, that guy's the outsider. The outsider's the unknown. The outsider's dangerous. And chimpanzees are famously murderous animals. If we leave ourselves on autopilot, human nature, we're murderous animals too. But we can rise above it. I firmly believe that. And I think the reckonings that have happened in my lifetime and yours in terms of civil rights, in terms of gay rights, in terms of international cooperation, the fact that the penultimate president was of African descent, the fact that we came very close to having a woman as a president of the United States, uh, you know, four years ago. These are things that would have been un- inconceivable in the year that I was born, which was 1960. Human nature doesn't change. Human behavior can change through an act of conscious effort. It brings to mind, uh, having served in the military in a couple of squeaky situations, it doesn't matter who, what, maybe this is where human behavior may touch human nature, at least within an individual. When you're under fire with someone, uh, doesn't matter, you know, what color they are, how many legs they have, you know, what plan, whatever, you know, uh, what, what gender they are, whatever, you are their sibling, period. Yes. And you have each other's back. It is the most visceral experience. And, but very few people have that experience, I guess, fortunately. But, uh, in a way, uh, if there were some other way to have that experience, uh, one could imagine, uh, the unity with a capital U that we talk about in our books, uh, manifesting in everyday human behavior and, and consciousness. In some small way, and I never want anybody to say, or Sawyer saying, on balance, there was some good from COVID. There's been no good no. from COVID-19. No. But it is a fact that we are united against a common enemy that isn't human. And that's been extraordinarily rare. In fact, it's really hard to think of any time in the past, really since the, the flu, the, the Spanish flu, that we have all, wherever you are in the world, faced the same enemy and it wasn't us. And so you do see an awful lot of, uh, in the best of communities, the best of people, coming together and saying, you know, yeah, I'm going to wear a mask, you're going to wear a mask, I'm going to uh, hand sanitize, you're, I'm going to trust you're going to hand sanitize. We're all rowing in the same direction here, ideally. Now, there have been defectors who aren't doing that, but by and large, we have said, okay, Forget our internecine conflicts. It's all of us versus that thing that is nothing like us. And that, you know, uh, is heartening to see. And you mentioned the military. I'll just say very quickly. The military, of course, prizes 
chain of command so highly, in part because at the top of the chain of command, you hope you have somebody who is totally in control of their human behavior so that the orders that come down that are inviolate, that you will be drummed out of the service if you go against, that would be knee-jerk human nature responses can be suppressed at a level at which deliberation, careful thinking, uh, hopefully strategic thought, and hopefully a good dose of humanitarianism. It's often said, I'm a pacifist, but I recognize when a general says this, you've heard it said many times, nobody hates war more than a general. Yeah. Because a general knows what is going to happen to cities, to people, and to post-traumatic stress disorder, to the employees, to the underlings, to the charges of care that that general has under him or her. You're right. So let's move into a realm that uh, I would like to hear your comments on. Uh, since 05, and this is one of Ben's first cases when he was 13 and he joined me in this crazy work, uh, we started to, to investigate what we refer to as flap areas. I think we got into this in our, our earlier conversation. And in uh, I'm thinking of the one in Connecticut, uh, Litchfield County, Connecticut, uh, towns of Goshen and Torrington and Litchfield, and there were, among all the other bizarre phenomena that, that people were reporting all over the place, and there were UFOs, people were having, a, you know, ghostly type things happening, there were Bigfoot reports even, and this is within 100 miles of New York City. And uh, there were also um, things people couldn't really identify and things of this kind, but there was also uh, evidence, uh, overwhelming evidence, and we're still collecting police reports on it, of mass changes in public behavior, so to speak. We found, now whether this has anything to do with it, and again, my military experience is, you know, 40 years ago uh, or more, uh, on top of Mohawk Mountain in Connecticut were, were these totally bizarre electronic uh, devices on, on a tower. And it was not cell tower material. That was, ne- that was right next door, about 100 uh, yards away on top of the mountain, but th- these things, I'd never seen anything like it before, and I still have a few contacts in the intelligence community, and they, they were going back and forth about this, etc. But there was, this is in uh, pretty much 09 and 2010, in, in through about 2012. Uh, 2009, 2010, there was all sorts of military activity in the area. Ground troops, they didn't care who knew it. In the middle of Connecticut, I mean, what's that about? And then later on, uh, in the, the ensuing uh, couple of years, there were uh, there, there were there were were stretches of people uh, in ridiculously high numbers for the statistics given the population uh, driving off the road and hitting trees. All right, when that was noticed in social media and in the press, it changed to people driving on the wrong side of the road. You know, in, in ludicrous numbers. Uh, that stopped after it was noticed, and th- there was a rash of suicides such as the area had never seen. Now. I don't happen to believe in coincidence, but it may be synchronist. I don't know. Um, the the, uh, the idea is whether we're dealing with some kind of mind control. I mean, you don't want to get nuts about this stuff either, but there is some pretty weird technology out there. In your um, research for your fact-based novels, particularly this one, what have you found about the ability to control human behavior from a third-party source, mechanical or, or human or otherwise? 
I'll give you a very simple and unintentional example. In I, I live just outside of Toronto. By the way, full points for pronouncing Mississauga properly. Not many. Oh, I'm an old uh, Toronto. Uh, freq- I have frequented the province very often. A lot, a lot of family know, there. You know the Royal Ontario Museum. Now in the 70s, they redid their gemology gallery, gemstones, jewelry, right? Mm-hmm. And they put in a burglar alarm system because they had. They don't have the Hope Diamond. That's at the Smithsonian, but they've got lots of really valuable jewelry. And the burglar alarm system was supposed to be completely inobtrusive. But now I'm a 60-year-old man now, and I have normal age-related loss of high-frequency hearing. But as a teenager, 12, 13, 14, that's about when they opened that gallery, I could hear mm, a whine, high-pitched, barely audible, but it was irritating as heck. And you would see kids go into that gallery with their parents, and they were well-behaved. They'd just seen the dinosaurs. Next, they were going to go see the stuffed dodo bird. It was a great day. They're having fun. They would go into that gallery, and they would come out crying, angry, snippy with their parents. The parents are oblivious because as you get older, you lose a little bit of that high frequency. And none of the designers or engineers had uh, who had put in the equipment, of course, were Kids, they weren't susceptible to this, but it absolutely, a third party had put in a device that changed the mental states of people who had just randomly wandered into the area. So I know from going way back to the early 70s, mid-70s, that this is eminently possible that you can alter human behavior by a stimulus which may, in the case of that one, the kids heard it, and therefore it was irritating because, you know, we actually heard it, or may not be discernible to the subject. But there's absolutely no question in my mind. Now, have we reached the point where we can fine-tune a behavior and have, like, a suicide uh, beam that where you sweep it across a cloud, a crowd, excuse me, causes everybody to want to commit suicide? I bet we don't yet. But I also am totally willing to believe that covert agencies... Various militaries, including friendly ones and foreign ones, are experimenting on trying to develop such systems. The ideal thing you want, of course, is if you've got two armies or if you've got the law enforcement officials and, and, and the rioting crowd facing each other, is you want, if you're inclined to want anything of this kind at all, something that you can do that just says, you know what, calm down. You know what? Set down your weapons. You know what? Stand down. Walk away. Turn around. Go home. Decide that it's too scary, uncomfortable, or just silly to be out here at this time of night doing what you're doing. So absolutely, that kind of development has to be going on. We can't continue for another thousand years using, you know, firearms as our only mode of deterrent when we face somebody who is precipitating or actually uh, participating in antisocial behavior. Well, well, one thinks uh, back a few years ago to uh, what was going on in Havana, and both American and Canadian diplomats were complaining, and other others as well, were complaining about uh, illnesses and things of this kind. And now, that, that, as I recall, might have been more olfactory than auditory. Yes. Uh, that sort of thing. However, but the um, olfactory uh, is very powerful. So I didn't mean to interrupt, but it's the reason why men sometimes wear cologne, women sometimes wear perfume. We are not consciously aware that we detect pheromones in the air. 
messenger molecules that actually have a neurological impact. We don't smell them necessarily, but there's absolutely no question that human beings, we don't have the ability that a dog or an ape has, but we still are influenced by them. No question, absolutely demonstrated in the laboratory. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, on that note, let's take our uh, middle-of-the-show break here, and um, you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WOON 1240 AM, 99.5 FM in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. We'll be right back with our great guest, Robert Sawyer. Stick with us. The night is alive. Join us and take a walk on the weird side when you tune in to the Kingdom of Nye, hosted by Heather Wade, the finest in late night talk. Listen live free weeknights starting at 9 p.m. Pacific time at thekingdomofnye.com, talkstreamlive.com, and the Paranormal Radio app. Wanna take a ride? Okay, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. It's WOON 1240 AM and 99.5 FM. And our guest today, Robert J. Sawyer, fact-based novelist and uh, thinker extraordinaire, Renaissance man. Let's uh, let's get to some uh, questions here from a listener. Now, um, as I may have uh, mentioned to you previously, Robert, we have a very, very faithful listener in Bogota, Colombia, uh, who all almost, uh, he's kind of an honorary co-host. We always He always sends an excellent question. So, uh, here's his question for this show. Uh, please ask Robert, some, this is a little off the beaten path for you perhaps, some of the greatest science fiction writers of the past, such as Isaac Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke, uh, were very open-minded about possibilities of intelligent life beyond the Earth, but absolutely closed-minded and negative about UFOs. What is your stance on the topic? Yeah, it, and it does strike most people as a paradox. So our friend from Colombia has a very good point there. Um, and I fall into a different, slightly different category, which is I, we have no evidence that there's extraterrestrial life around other star systems. We've never picked up a reliable radio signal. We don't see any, even just setting aside, ex, uh, you know, intelligent life, we don't see any biosignatures on any exoplanets that we look at that are reliably uh, recorded at this point. So, you know, I'm a guy who says the act of believing in aliens is as much as an act of faith as the act of believing in anything else that you don't have concrete evidence for. Uh, there are a great number of people who believe in God or believe in angels or believe in other uh, supernatural things without any concrete evidence for their existence. And that's, you know, perfectly fine uh, uh, choice. There are a great many wonderful intellectual people of faith on this planet and I never, I'm not one uh, and I never decry them That's it, they're obviously thoughtful people but the UFO issue is one where Carl Sagan said it very nicely extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof on the one hand so we actually want to see and I've got to say I've been to Roswell, New Mexico <laughs> I've gone to the museum I have looked at, forgive me but to my eye as a guy who has worked in film and television, what looked to me like plastic dummies of alien beings and not preserved bodies of alien beings mm-hmm. I haven't seen that extraordinary proof Asimov didn't see it, Clark didn't see it, but we all would be the first in line to uh, you know, if you said today it was in Bogota that an alien spaceship had landed and you gave us credible reason to believe you weren't a prankster or a hoaxster, we would be the first, if we were allowed international travel today, to be on a plane to come out there and, A, 
give the Vulcan salute and say that we're friendly, mm-hmm. and B, try to be the vanguards of communication, because as science fiction writers, we've spent decades trying to figure out how to talk across species boundaries. So it's a great question. Um, but Asimov and Clark were both equally wrong in uh, saying, I, you know, absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence. Just because we've never seen any evidence that an alien being has come here. If you follow their chain of reasoning, which says the universe, three, three, let's say three terms of the Drake equation, there are billions of planets in our galaxy. There are billions of, um, uh, you know, uh, billions of years of time have passed since the Big Bang, three, 13.8 billion years ago, and biochemistry seems to have nothing mystical about it. It looks like under the right conditions it'll rise anywhere. So if you say, well, yeah, I believe in extraterrestrial life, why don't you believe that any of it has ever come here to visit us? And the answer almost is a put up or shut up. You can put the Drake equation on a blackboard. See, I've proven extraterrestrial life exists. And nobody can really gainsay you because it's just chalk dust. But if you say, <laughs> see, an alien spaceship has actually crashed in a hillside in Colombia, then I want to say, show it to me and show me the metallurgist's report that says that it's not of, of terrestrial origin. So I, I think the only sane position to take is reasonable skepticism about both ideas, about whether aliens have already been here and whether or not any of them exist who haven't come here yet. Well, I think that's a very, very reasonable explanation. Uh, but you're talking to a person who over the last 50 years has seen things that would curl your eyebrows. You know, and, Such uh, as they are. <laughs> yeah, you're right. And, and uh, thin eyebrows for the audio audience. Oh, okay. <laughs> but, you know, in the presence of witnesses, including journalists, police yeah. officers, and firefighters. You know. So, I mean, uh, had I not seen those things, I would be, um, I am still, still skeptical about, you know, what the causes may be, what the process is. But I've come to believe that today's paranormal is tomorrow's science. Yes. You know, I think we're dealing with, you know, so. I think we talked in the pre-interview, which was a while ago, but I think I told you a story about me lying out, uh, camping out in my parents' backyard mm. in the suburbs of Toronto, lying up with a friend, my best friend at the time, David Raymer. We're sleeping bags, ground sheets. And I, you know, I was the know-it-all. I was the science buff. This was probably about 11 years old, 19... 19- 70, 71, and there goes, in a normal north-south orbit, you can see it, a satellite moving slowly across the sky, regular piece, going directly from north to south. Well, any clear night you get out in the countryside, if you are patient and have good eyesight, you can see satellites moving in the night sky. They're sure. metallic after all, reflective. And I said, look, that's a satellite, perfectly, you know, wow, very cool, we put that up there. And then it reversed course. Hmm. which a satellite can't do. A satellite is falling in free fall around the Earth and just goes by momentum. It's not powered. Doesn't It, it just falls endlessly, and it happens that the horizon is always behind it instead of front, in front of it, so it doesn't hit the planet. That's the way orbital mechanics work. How did it reverse course? I'm an intelligent guy, even at that age, but certainly more so today, well-read on atmospheric phenomena. I know how airplanes work. They can't do a 180 instantaneously in the sky. So I have my own UFO sighting, and I have no explanation for it, but I will never dismiss it because I saw it with my own. And my friend, we were together. There was another witness to this. We both 
saw this phenomenon. And I think that's the nature of this. There's some people who will look up and they'll see things that another person will know are natural. Sun dogs are an example. Mm. Bright reflections of the sun in high atmospheric uh, ice crystals uh, to the left and the right of the sun in the sky. They look like they could be UFOs or alien spaceships or what have you, or angels, depending on your paradigm of belief. Um, those can be readily explained, but you're absolutely right. When you say there's a minority, of course, everybody who thinks they see something strange isn't right, but there is a minority of cases that have defied any explanation. And the right approach is to continue to try to find the explanation, which might indeed be paranormal or extraterrestrial, rather than to say, eh, I've explained 95%. Uh, you know, sometimes I go to a restaurant, I can explain 95% of the ingredients in the meal, <laughs> but not figure out what that other 5% the chef has put in. doesn't mean I ignore it. I still wonder about it. And if I get, you know, food poisoning the next day, I'm very curious about <laughs> that, exactly. that unknown 5%. You don't just discount it because you can't immediately categorize or identify it. Okay. Well, you've already answered the first half of the second half of uh, the first question from Peter here. Uh, have you had any UFO experiences or researched yes. the subject? Okay. Oh, very much so. Like, like every science fiction buff, we go through a, two periods. Well, the first period <laughs> we go through is the uh, prior to what he mentioned about Asimov and Clark. We absolutely are all UFO buffs. Uh, when we start out, we think, of course, the universe is teeming with life. And naturally, what goes on down here on Earth must be interesting. And so I think we all, uh, at the time I was uh, a teenager, there was a book out called Flying Saucers, Serious Business, which was based on a U.S. Air Force report called uh, Unidentified Flying Objects, Serious Business. And the Project Blue Book letters had been collected by J. Allen Hynek, the great UFO investigator, and published in paperback form. There was a lot of, uh, uh, you know, at that time of my life, it happened to be a particular time in history, a lot of people encountered this stuff. And I think in, at my time of life, around 1970, when I was 10, 12, 13, 14, those years, everybody was reading Eric Von Daniken, the Chariots of the Gods oh, guy, yeah. right? Yeah. And each generation has its own uh, writers who will write about these particular topics. Whitley Strieber came later. Others came later. Uh, Paul Casey came earlier. But everybody who is curious about the wide awe and wonder of the night, to quote a great Canadian Confederation poet, Archibald Lampman, the wide awe of the, and wonder of the night. If you've ever stared up at the night sky and just wondered, as every science fiction fan has, then of course you're drawn to this material. Okay. Well, let's go to Peter's uh, second question. It says, about your process of getting story ideas, you have said you do a tremendous amount of research. How do you transform that into stories? Uh, and I'll finish. The, are you asking yourself a lot of what-if questions, and how does that work? So that's a very good question, Peter. Thank you. I do tons of research. These days, usually at least a year, and that was the case for Quantum Night, for sure, the experimental psychology novel we've been speaking of, and uh, a year and a half for the Oppenheimer Alternative, my more recent novel about uh, the atomic bomb project, before I decide what it is I'm going to write, I am just a sponge, absorbing everything. But what I'm on the lookout for is something 
interesting to say thematically. And it isn't until I've got that thematic statement that I then start developing characters and plot and dialogue and so forth. So, for instance, for Quantum Night, the one we were talking about, experimental psychology, I eventually realized after immersing myself, not just in Stanley Milgram, but in Robert Zimbardo and the famous Stanford Prison Guard experiment and all the other notorious experiments that have been done by parties of good intent and also, of course, in Nazi Germany and other places, uh, in experimental psychology, I came up with my thematic statement, which was this. The most pernicious lie humanity has ever told itself is that you cannot change human behavior. In fact, you can. You can change it overnight. You can change it in a year. You can change it in a lifetime. We have seen it, just to take another example I mentioned previously, the civil rights movement, to go from a segregated South in the United States, to go from apartheid in South Africa, to an era in which uh, you know, uh, Barack Obama and Nelson Mandela were amongst the most respected people in their own countries as well as across the world. By not everybody, but by, you have to admit, in both cases, the majority was a single lifetime, a few decades of time, and a complete change in behavior for tens, if not hundreds, of millions of human beings. Once I realized that human behavior, maybe not human nature, which we had made a distinction about earlier, but human behavior is endlessly malleable and can be changed for the better as easily as it can be changed for the worst. I had a grip on the novel I wanted to write. All right. Now let's get into that in the sense of uh, the multiverse, quantum mechanics. How do, you, how do your characters use quantum mechanics or, or the MWI, the multiverse, whatever you want to call it, to, ch- to change human behavior? You know, the funny thing about the the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics is that in some ways it's value neutral. And here's why. Suppose I'm walking behind you in the grocery store when we get to go back to grocery stores. And suppose a $20 bill falls out of your back pocket. There are two actions I can take. One is I can pick it up and say, excuse me, uh, did you drop this? And the other is I can pick it up and put it in my own back pocket. And the many worlds interpretation says, well, you know, both universes exist. So you got to be a schmuck, Rob, if you're not the one who puts it <laughs> in your own back pocket, right? So the, the um, ethics of it are quite fascinating. We have to behave as ethical beings, as if we don't live in a multiverse, as if the cha- choice we make matters. Because if you uh, abrogate that responsibility and say, well, it's going to be somebody who is going to steal that money, dump their garbage in that lake. You know, there's a virgin. I, I can't help it. It's the laws of physics. Like Scotty says, I cannot change the laws of physics. I got it. Somebody's got to do it. Might as well be me doing whichever one is easiest for me. But I love that notion of exploring the alternative possibilities. I think uh, uh, it's probably the greatest gift to human imagination, much more so than relativity or, or you know, Newton's uh, theory of gravitation or anything else that we ever got out of physics is these 
we still call them fringe notions, even though they're 100 years old now, these fringe notions out of the edges of quantum mechanics that reality isn't resolved until it's observed by a conscious entity. Wow, holy cow, that no matter what you choose to do now, there's another version of you doing the opposite or all the other permutations that are possible. Oh, my God, uh, what a big idea. This is incredible fuel for imagination and for ethical consideration. And I think ultimately this is what makes all sciences part of the humanities. We don't study physics to figure out equations. We ultimately study physics to figure out us. Mm. It all seems to be about choice, doesn't it? A lot of choice in there. And, uh, well, uh, uh, you know, we're live today. Some people will listen later. But, of course, the United States is going to the polls in a couple of days, right, Mm -hmm. for a very important election. And we hold in most of the West that democracy, the exercise of free choice by well-informed, well-intentioned individuals, is the highest human value. So, yeah, and, and we didn't always used to believe that. You know, one of the areas that some would certainly still consider fringe, uh, that I'm fascinated by is Julian James's theory of the origin of consciousness and the breakdown of the bicameral mind, which basically says it's only recent historical times where we've realized that that voice you hear in your head that says, you know, Rob, you really don't need another cupcake, is yourself <laughs> and not a god talking to you, right? Prior to the breakdown, that is, the bicameral mind, two chambers, left and right hemisphere, prior to the breakdown of those into uh, one integrated whole, we always thought whatever we were doing, we were being told to do. Well, I had to kill him. You know, God said I had to. I had to take his land. I had to do this. I had to do that. I heard it. It was a voice in my head. I can't argue with God speaks directly to me. It's only recently that we realized, you know, that's just you talking to yourself and that you have to listen to your own voice and decide whether or not, because there really are two in there, right? One saying, take that cupcake. And the other one saying, yeah, tastes good today, but when you weigh yourself tomorrow, <laughs> you're going to regret it. Choice is the most fundamental. In physics, we see that, you know, the uh, two-slit experiment yeah. with a, uh, a beam of um, photons or electrons uh, being sent towards a target you give them one hole to go through, and you get an interference pattern. You give them two slits to go through, and you still get an interference pattern, even though at some level, supposedly, they had to choose to go through the left or the right. Choice is what drives reality, and it is incredible that there are people who now have a chance to make a macro choice to go and vote who are going to sit on their duffs and not exercise what the most humble photon exercises every time it encounters a barrier. Well, uh, why don't we take a moment now before we use up the hour to uh, talk about your website, your other books, where people can find out more. Sure. My name is Robert J. Sawyer, J. the middle initial. So uh, on social media, and I'm most active on Facebook, Twitter, and Patreon, it's all run together. Robert J. Sawyer. Uh, I was the first science fiction writer in the world to have a website, so I scored <laughs> a great URL. It's sfwriter.com. 
writer.com. Yeah. S is in science fiction, SF is in science fiction, and then writer.com. And you'll find well over a million words of text about me. My 24 novels, as you mentioned, all of them are in print, all of them are available. Uh, go to your favorite bookstore if you want the recent stuff, or go to your favorite online reseller if you want some of the older stuff. But the philosophically, I like to think, rich, uh, uh, ethically investigatory, factually based, hard science fiction of Robert J. Sawyer should be uh, easy to find online and off. It is, and it's great stuff. Okay, uh, now... The- the multiverse, if it does exist, and most people believe that it does in physics, in one form or another, has caveats. Okay, there are, or at least we we had to invent a number of terms just to talk about our concepts. And and you know my background is is theology and philosophy. Ben's is uh, film and sound design, audio engineering. So we're not physicists. However, we have from what we've seen in the trenches, so to speak. We've encountered what would appear to be world families, uh, worlds where the laws of physics are similar or the same, and the outcomes uh, are, as you say, you either pick up the $20 bill or, or you don't, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, there seem to be other ones where if uh, the wave function collapses and you end up, you know, in an intersect point with, with that, you start, you know, you think you're seeing ghosts and all this, which may or may not be some of the life forms, that kind of thing. So it does seem to be that there are <clears throat> dangers in anyone who's attempting to manipulate this. Uh, there could be unforeseen consequences, as always happens, particularly when the government's in charge of experiments. So wh- what would you say as a word of caution to anyone who's attempting to manipulate behavior or, or simply manipulate reality? You know, we are terrible at predicting the outcome of experiments, which is why we still do science, right? If we were good at it, think about this. If we were good about this, sitting around the campfire 100,000 years ago as Cro-Magnons, we could have just said, you know, it seems likely that the Earth is not the center of the universe. It seems likely that the sun's movements are best explained in the sky by the fact that it's the center of our local universe and that those others are blah, blah, blah. We could have done it all from first principles, just sitting around. We didn't. We had to wait for experiment and confirmation because we're terrible at looking out at nature. And and by the way, there's a reason for it. Evolution biased us against uh, towards false positives, right? If you're walking along on the African savanna and you think you see a tiger in the grass and there isn't one, no harm, no foul, nobody's hurt. But if there is one and you don't see it, you're lunch. <laughs> so evolution selected preferentially for our psyches to see incorrectly reality to vastly over uh, uh, see things that aren't there but that doesn't mean that we also are, are missing things that aren't there so we just don't look at reality the way it is we look at it the way evolution shaped us to see it and it may mean that we are seeing things that aren't there some ghostly apparitions are like that it may also mean that we have never developed the sensorium or the intellectual capacity to see an awful lot of things that are there. And I mentioned that Many Worlds is the most fascinating revelation of physics, but the most humbling is also from this past century, dark matter and dark energy, Mm. that 90% of everything that we know 
must be there because of its gravitational effects. We know it's there. It's there. The Milky Way galaxy would have spun out like a pinwheel, not the way it is now, but just flung apart from its rotational velocity if it wasn't way, 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 way more massive, ten times more massive than all the stars and dust and planets that we can see in it could account for. There's 90% of everything we, because it's not presumably here most of the time in our day-to-day living rooms or out in the fields uh, that we walk in, 90% of everything is unknown to us. Evolution had no reason to give us sensors. There are life forms on this planet that can detect magnetic fields. There are life forms on this planet that can detect seismic tremors that we can't detect. But there's no life form that we know of on this planet that can detect dark matter or dark energy without instrumentality. There's 90% of everything we don't have the tools to perceive. Well, that that raises the question in our last few minutes here uh, of something we talked about earlier, which is proof. What constitutes proof, uh, particularly when we have a, um, a materialist paradigm uh, on which our uh, scientific method is based? Uh, does that have to be changed? I mean, quantum mechanics, of all things, certainly indicates uh, possibilities of non-material explanations for things. Yes, absolutely. You know, there are fundamental assumptions in science, and one of the fundamental assumptions that's now come very much under scrutiny is that scientific experiments are replicatable. Mm. We take as a given that if you do an experiment in your lab in the United States, and I do the same experiment with careful control to make sure the conditions are the same. In mine in Toronto, and our friend uh, Peter is at in, uh, in uh, Bogota does it down there, that we will all get the same results. There's a massive crisis, particularly in the social sciences, to bring it full circle to my novel Quantum Night right now, of the ear replicability of social science experiments. Somebody redoes Stanley Milgram, and they get a different result. Somebody redoes Robert Zimbardo, and they get a different result. It may, in fact, be that we live in a universe that just because something happened this way once doesn't mean that it's going to happen that way every time. It's a fundamental article of faith. That's what it is. It's an article of faith in our scientific method that if different people do the same thing at different times in different places, the result will be the same. And we're finding an awful lot of evidence in a lot of stuff that either it's completely random how it turns out, that's the cornerstone of quantum physics, or that it just simply is not replicable. That we have solid results, that we can look at the data. We talked about alien beings. The wow signal is the famous SETI message that was apparently detected and never detected again. We don't know that we live in a universe that just does reruns. It may just drop a new show every day instead. Okay. Well, uh, that's about all the time we have. Uh, Robert, thank you for a wonderful conversation. We'll be in touch off the air because I have future plans for you on this show. Lovely. My pleasure. Okay, great. Thank you so much, everybody. Robert J. Sawyer. Okay, let's uh, move on to our announcements here, if we can. And uh, All right. So our public events, all but uh, one of which has been virtual, seems to be seem to be done for this year, but you never know, so stay tuned on that one. 
Uh, with any luck, though, we plan to speak uh, at the New England Parafest on April 10th and 11th, 2021 in Kittery, Maine. And we will do a live broadcast of this show with a panel of the speakers on Sunday the 11th. Uh, more information will be forthcoming. It's all, of course, COVID permitting. Uh, check out our books along with those of our other co-hosts at our show website, BehindTheParanormal.com, where you will also find uh, more about the show, our many cases over the years, and our public appearances and how to book us, along with uh, some of our uh, 900 shows that are uh, recorded from our 12-plus years on the air, including our four-and-a-half-year run on CBS Radio, along with these special shows and podcasts. Uh, those are available on all the major podcast platforms, including YouTube, uh, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Paranormal Radio app, and more. And uh, soon we have uh, plans to have all those shows back to 2008 uploaded to those uh, apps. And most of them are, but we got that one year to go uh, from our earliest uh, days. Uh, there are links to several charities we have adopted on the show at BehindTheParanormal.com. Uh, these include USA Cares, uh, Canadian Veterans Advocacy, Helping Haiti's Orphans, Youth Mentoring Connection in Los Angeles, uh, Tony Laray doing great work out there for at-risk populations and youth, uh, the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of America, and the Sisterhood of Ground Zero, also the Milk Fund here in Northern Rhode Island. Uh, those charities are run by people we know personally. Uh, you can be sure that any aid you give them goes to the right place, and we do encourage you to check that out. We have a special page on our website about that. Uh, next week, uh, November 8th, Ben will be back along with special guest co-host Shane Searway to bring you the first of two back-to-back open-line shows to tackle many questions from listeners on all sorts of paranormal subjects. And... Um, there we have it. I want to thank uh, our great, uh, as I say, a samurai among um, station managers, Dave Richards, was uh, filling in for Ben today, uh, running the board, something I somehow in the last 13 years have never quite learned to do, uh, kind of frightening. And Ben will be back next week, of course, with, with Shane Searway. And again, we uh, point you toward the website sfwriter.com of our good friend Robert J. Sawyer, tremendous show today from him. And uh, all the possibilities that are suggested in the multiverse and uh, that sort of thing, too. So, again, uh, we, um, uh, if you order our books, uh, there are about nine of them at this point from our website, BehindTheParanormal.com. Ben and I would be happy to autograph them for you if that gives you any kind of thrill. Uh, and uh, you won't uh, pay any more than uh, you would anywhere else, okay? <laughs> We're not like the uh, Red Sox or the Yankees. We don't charge for our autograph. And uh, we have another book coming up next year. Uh, it's called Behind the Paranormal 3, Uneasy Skies. And uh, it's kind of by request of a lot of listeners who uh, enjoy our uh, uh, bo- format where we take guests from our show and uh, put in the best of their interviews. And that's really, really kind of enlightening that way. So anyway, we'll leave you uh, today with a thought from contemporary philosopher David Chalmers. And, and this, this quote opens the book we've talked about today, Quantum Night, it may be a requirement for a theory of consciousness that it contain at least one crazy idea. And boy, couldn't agree more. So again, thank you, Dave Richards. Uh, I'm Paul Eno. Uh, thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey, and we'll see you next time on Behind the Paranormal. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of... Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.